Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please check out my new course, The Bronze Age, at avid.fm ancient. That's avid.fm ancient. There's discount pricing, 100% satisfaction guarantee, all that good stuff. So if you're looking for a way to support the show, this is a great way to do it. Thanks again for listening. The actual nature of the invading sea peoples is notoriously hard to pin down. In contrast to the popular conception, it was less a rapid sweep by a unified mass along a steady coastal trajectory than a slow, sporadic sequence of attacks by different groups on different targets spread out across years or even decades. Some sea peoples settled down en route, while some settled peoples became uprooted and joined the marauders in progress. Despite the random and changeable aspects, there was a broad trajectory, one that put them on a collision course with the cities of coastal Syria. So, the kings of Syria were faced with a question of timing— If they knew when and where an attack was coming, they could gather their armies, bar their gates, and send out calls for help. But, as we've all learned over the past year, indefinite lockdowns can be kind of hard to maintain. Cities and kingdoms had to keep performing the same vital functions, like agriculture and trade, that kept them prosperous in times of peace. Only now they had to do it all with one wary eye on the coast. Actually, it was even a bit worse. Because the same famine that was affecting Anatolia was also impacting Syria. Historian Eric Klein notes that contemporary records refer to a famine ravaging the city of Imar in inland Syria, and that coastal Ugarit was also affected by famine. Klein quotes a letter from a king of Ugarit to the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah, asking, May the Lord save the land of Ugarit, and may the king give grain to save my life, and to save the citizens of the land of Ugarit. Theoretically, northern Syria was still the domain of the great king Supaluliuma II of Hatti. 
But for all the good it did the Syrians, he could have been king of the moon. Even if they were still in contact, all the Syrian kings would have learned was that Anatolia was probably in worse shape than they were. In fact, facing down the grim trifecta of revolts, famine, and coastal raids, it's even possible that the Hittite king had requested Syrian support. So, at the time they faced their greatest threat, the literal prospect of mass destruction, the cities of Syria were left to their own devices, though some at least tried to rely on each other. One of the more compelling exchanges took place between the unnamed king of Alashaya, modern Cyprus, and King Amurapi of Ugarit. According to Klein, contemporary Ugarit was a functioning, busy, and prosperous commercial city and port, whose homes and storehouses held products from all over the eastern Mediterranean and Aegean. The royal palace held clay tablets inscribed in a variety of languages, sometimes Akkadian, sometimes Hittite, sometimes Egyptian, and sometimes other less widely used languages, such as Hurrian. The city is also famous for using one of the earliest alphabetic scripts, known as Ugaritic. In addition to commercial transactions and royal correspondence, the script was also used to preserve literature, mythology, history, and religion. In fact, the world's oldest known song, an ancient Hurrian hymn, was recovered from the city of Ugarit. These records include a letter received from the king of Alashaya, in which he's responding to a previous letter sent by King Amurapi. Regarding what you wrote me before, enemy ships were observed at sea. If it is true that ships were observed, reinforce yourself. Where are your troops and chariots? Are they not with you? If not, who will deliver you from the enemy? Surround your cities with walls and bring your troops and chariots into them. Watch out for the enemy and reinforce yourself well. Which is pretty solid advice. But Amurapi's response was less than reassuring. Father, the ships of the enemy have been coming. They have been burning down my villages and have done evil things to the countryside. Does my father not know that all my troops and chariots are in Hattie and that all my ships are in Lucca? They have not reached me, so the country is undefended. If other enemy ships appear, send me a message so that I know. It's a bit of a mystery why Ugarit's military forces were abroad. It's possible that they'd been summoned by Supaluliuma II to fight for him somewhere up north. Another letter from Alashaya this time from the governor instead of the king, gives Amurapi the warning he'd asked for. The twenty ships that the enemies earlier left in the mountainous areas have not stayed behind. They left suddenly, and we do not know where they are. I write to you to inform you so that you can guard yourself. King Amurapi was also corresponding with King Talmi Teshub of Carchemish who may have commanded one of Syria's more substantial armies, unless they'd also been diverted to Anatolia. 
Amarapi told Talmi Teshub that enemy forces had taken his harbor and were launching attacks on his city. Now may the Lord send me forces and chariots to save me, and may my Lord save me from the forces of this enemy. Talmi Teshub dispatched some troops to stiffen Ugarit's defense, but it was either too little or too late. Klein notes that Ugarit was destroyed, apparently quite violently. The site's later excavators reported evidence of destruction and fire throughout the city, including collapsed walls and heaps of ashes, in some places two meters high. Historian Mark Van de Meerup adds that Ugarit's harbor, Ras Ibn Hani, was also sacked, but it was soon resettled, perhaps by the people who had attacked it. In the same rough time frame, Klein notes that the nearby coastal town of Gabala was also completely destroyed. Fortunately for Talmi Teshub, Karkemish was 200 miles from the coast, though the Hittite viceroyalty of Aleppo was only half that distance. If any part of him held out hope that the Hittite army'd come rolling south to crush the seaborne invaders, it was quickly consigned to the flames. Because Talmi Teshub soon got word that the Hittite great king Supaluliuma II had abandoned the capital of Hattusas. The conventional image of Hattusas during the Bronze Age collapse is its sudden violent destruction. But according to historian Trevor Bryce, recent excavations have shown that Hattusas had already been largely deserted long before it was burned, which meant that Supaluliumid made the decision that the city was no longer defensible. Defensible against whom being the relevant question. The candidates are boundless. Sea peoples, Kazga, Phrygians, the Luwians of the former Hittite periphery, even the people of the land of Hatti, who were slowly starving to death. The concept wasn't exactly novel. Hittite kings had evacuated the capital a surprising number of times. In fact, when Supaluliuma I had been born, the Hittite capital had been lost to the Kazka, and he had to campaign with his father and brother to regain control of the city. But even if the loss wasn't novel, neither was it particularly reassuring. Clearly not for the city's residents, who watched their king pack up his family, soldiers, administrators, priests, treasures, records, chariots, even the city gods. Though they probably reserved their most audible groan for watching him take all the grain. The one saving grace was that even as he left Hattusas, Supaluliuma probably had every intention of returning. I mean, he certainly told everyone that, if only so they'd let him escape alive. But he also likely meant it. This was all just a bit of a rough patch, and once things calmed down, he'd come back to reclaim his capital. Nor was he necessarily deluded in thinking so, because all he had to go on was history. The most interesting corollary to the king's decision is that he must have had a place in mind to serve as a temporary refuge. 
And though he very likely completed his journey, we have zero record of where he went. All we have to go on is educated guesswork. North of Hattusas were the Kazka, so forget about that. And seaborne raiders were wreaking havoc along the entire Anatolian coast. Tarhuntasa, if it still existed, may have still been hostile after the recent civil war. And considering their similar lineage, Supaluliuma may have been wary of trying to displace Talmi Teshub as king of Carchemish. All these factors tend to define a path of least resistance. A corridor from Hattusas southeast toward Syria, equidistant from the Mediterranean and the Euphrates. And if you follow that corridor to its logical conclusion, you find a potential terminus. Just to the north of northwest Syria was the region of Kirkuma, or Gurgum. It was mainly populated by Luwians and Hurrians, and had its capital at Marcus, modern Marash, or Kamaran Marash, Turkey. Which, it turns out, I actually visited once in 2015, on my way to see Mount Nemrit. The modern city is known for its ice cream, and I can testify that it's pretty darn good. Anyway, there's a reasonable chance that it was in the city of Marcus, in the region of Gurgum, that Supaluliuma decided to set up his court and secure his treasure and grain. Otherwise, who knows? If he was feeling optimistic, maybe he left some stuff boxed up in hopes of his imminent return. If so, I hate to bum him out, but that return, it's not going to happen. One piece of evidence that he put down roots is a subsequent dynasty of nine known kings, many of which use the names of Hittite royals. So, Talmi Teshub had a brand new neighbor, and he probably sent him a nice gift basket and a few coupons for local merchants to help him feel at home. But honestly, he had bigger fish to fry. After the destruction of Ugarit, a large group of sea peoples had set up camp in the coastal region of Amuru, between the Orontes and the Mediterranean. From there, they launched a series of attacks on a number of inland targets. The targets included Kadesh, Katna, and Hamath, all along the upper Orontes, as well as both Aleppo and Imar. Aleppo, as we previously noted, was home to a dynastic line of Hittite viceroys, and it's unknown whether its rulers were killed or ejected. Imar was an ancient city sited at a bend in the mid-Euphrates. It also marked the southern boundary of the kingdom of Carchemish. So if coastal raiders had come that far inland and destroyed a city 60 miles upriver, it's reasonably likely that Carchemish came under attack. If so, Talmi Teshub was somehow able to defend it. A temple inscription of Ramesses III captures the contemporary scene. He identifies the sea peoples invading Syria as the Peleset, Jeker, Shekelesh, Denyan, and Weshesh, lands united. He also reports that 
no land could stand before their arms. From Hadi, Tarhuntasa, Karkemish, Arzawa, and Alishaya on, being cut down at one time. A camp was set up in one place in Amuru. They desolated its people, and its land was like that which had never come into being. With the exception of Karkemish, which shows no physical signs of attack, the description is fairly accurate. Eventually, many of those who were camped at Amuru decided to migrate south. Over the months that followed, they traveled along the ways of Horus, the ancient route of Egyptian armies, burning and pillaging every city they found. Jaffa, Akko, Ashkelon, Ashdod, even Gaza. They also penetrated further inland, destroying the major cities of Lachish, Hazor, and Megiddo. At Megiddo, the biblical Armageddon, Klein notes that the violent destruction was so extensive that the subsequent builders deemed it more expedient to level off the resulting debris and build over it than to remove it. By this time, the Sea People's ultimate goal was coming into focus. Ramesses recorded that they were coming forward toward Egypt, where the flame was prepared for them. Meanwhile, in Karkemish, Talmi Teshub was likely breathing an enormous sigh of relief. I mean, he had no ill will toward Ramesses III. He didn't even know the guy. But his thinking was likely better him than me. If the Sea Peoples killed the pharaoh, destroyed his army, and settled themselves across the Nile Delta, there wasn't really much of a downside. The Eternal Treaty'd served its purpose, and with Egypt broken, Hittite Syria had one less regional rival. But none of that was meant to be and Talmi Teshub eventually got word that Ramesses III had utterly destroyed the Sea Peoples. First, he'd led the Egyptian army to shatter those advancing by land. Then, as their fleet approached, he'd lined the delta with Egyptian bowmen and filled the sky with arrows. Ships were seized with grappling hooks, overturned, and dragged ashore with everyone on board either captured or killed. After decades of ravaging the Mediterranean, the Sea Peoples had finally met their match, a determined, skilled, and powerful ruler at the head of a unified army. The pharaoh captured dozens of ships, and a later inscription records that he slew the Denyan in their isles in a later seaborne campaign which, if true, was a rarity for Egyptians, who typically hugged the coast. Ramesses III also marched his army into southern Syria to clear out hostile remnants. But knowing that a depopulated Syria invited invasion, he allowed some groups to resettle the area, under strict obligation and oversight. The settlers included the former sea peoples known as the Cheker and Peleset. The Cheker settled in the city of Dor, near modern Haifa, Israel, where they're known for greatly expanding its fortifications. 
At some point over the following century, they became the vassals of nearby Tyre, just 50 miles to the north. The Peleset are much more famous as the later biblical Philistines, as well as the origin of the term Palestine, not to mention that they very likely hailed from Mycenaean Greece. In a fairly short time frame, the Peleset dominated five southern cities— Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza, later known as the Philistine Pentapolis. But really, individual cities aside, the only functioning Syrian state was the one up north in Carchemish. And it was right around this time that Talmi Teshub passed away and was succeeded by his son, Kuzi Teshub. At the time he took power, the kingdom's territory stretched north and south along the upper Euphrates. To the south, it extended as far as Emar, the closest city destroyed by the Sea Peoples. To the north, it extended past the land of Kuma to the major city of Malachia. The city was the northern anchor point of Kuzi Teshub's riverine kingdom, and he soon dispatched a family member likely a brother or son, to rule Malacha as viceroy. It was lost on no one, certainly not Kuzi Teshub, that the recently displaced Hittite regime was squatting right on his doorstep. Barely a hundred miles separated Carchemish from the city of Marcus in Gurgum. Assuming Supaluliuma was there, the diplomatic maneuverings of the period must have been pretty interesting. Given his comparable pedigree, it was highly unlikely that Kuzi Teshub assumed a subordinate role. Instead, each king probably did their best to secure the loyalty of nearby cities, by installing loyalists, granting favors, promising protection, or giving bribes. In a sense, both men were evenly matched. Supaluliuma may have had greater wealth and military power, while Kuzi Teshub was well-established with long-term Syrian roots. And, oddly, both men likely shared the same hope, that Supaluliuma would return up north to try to recapture Hattusis. And both were likely equally gutted to learn of the city's downfall. The final destruction of Hattusas took place a few years after Supaluliuma's departure. Klein notes that both the upper and lower city were destroyed by an intense fire, as well as the royal acropolis and the fortifications. The most likely culprits, from an historical standpoint, were the neighboring Casca tribe. The city had fallen several times before, and even been sacked and burned before. So there was no particular reason to think that this time would be any different. But, oddly enough, it was. Whatever his plans or hopes or ambitions, the last Hittite king, Supaluliuma II, would never see Hattusas again. His passing around the mid-12th century BC, marks a fitting transition from the late Bronze Age to the brave new world to follow. As I mentioned, whether Supaluliuma had settled in Marcus is largely a matter of guesswork, 
and we have no information whatsoever about any of his sons or heirs. But we do know that sometime after the great king's death, Kuzi Teshub made a fateful decision. He stopped referring to himself as the Hittite viceroy of Carchemish and started calling himself the great king Kuzi Teshub of Hatti. He was essentially staking his claim to all remaining Hittite lands, most of which were now in northern Syria. Ironically, by seeking to establish continuity, he created something new, what in later years would be looked back on as the first Neo-Hittite kingdom. Mm-hmm. 